Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The CIA was great. It gives real responsibility and real authority to young officers. That was something that it instilled a, a work ethic in me that I think I've been able to carry over in Congress. The entire world should be hopeful that the issue of North Korea gets solved diplomatically. We have to continue to keep sanctions moving forward. We have to keep that pressure up. You serve on the House Intelligence Committee. Chairman Devin Nunes has taken quite a bit of heat. Devin is ultimately doing what he thinks is is best. I think your listeners need to know the Intelligence Committee is more than just one person. Will Hurd is a Republican representative for Texas's 23rd Congressional District which stretches 800 miles from San Antonio to El Paso. Before being elected to Congress, Will served as a CIA operations officer for nearly a decade. He is widely respected as one of Congress's experts on national security. He serves on the Committee of Oversight and Government Reform, the House Homeland Security Committee, and the House Permanent Select Intelligence Committee. I had a chance to catch up with Will recently to talk about the national security issues facing the nation. Will and I will start our discussion after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Congressman, it is great to have you on the show, and it is always good to see you. It's great to be with you. So you've taken an interesting trajectory to get to where you are. What triggered your interest in working for CIA, and how did you end up there? Well, what, what triggered my interest is I, I was at Texas A&M University, and Texas A&M University sends more people uh, to the CIA than even the academies now. And I was a computer science major, and I'm walking across campus. I see a sign that says, take two journalism classes in Mexico City for $425. 
and I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I go to Mexico. It was a good deal. It was yeah, a good it really deal. was. It really was. And it was cool being in another culture. I thought it was awesome seeing things I'd only read about in books. And I added international studies as a minor. My first class I took, I had a guest lecturer, Jim Olson. And he was, he, when he left the CIA, he was the deputy director of CI. Um, he was involved. Counterintelligence. In counterintelligence. He, he was involved in the hunt in, for, for some notorious spies in, in the CIA's history. And he told the most amazing stories, and that began my interest in, in the agency. And he's probably the main reason why Texas A&M sends so many folks to CIA. Because he inspires them. He does, 100%. His wife you know, I always have to tell people that know Jim, I'm like, his wife was a better officer than he was when he was in the CIA, and, and she's, she's great, too. And so I, I applied, and when I graduated at 22, I, I went fresh in, into the agency. And I actually started, I was driving my Toyota 4Runner from San Antonio to Washington, D.C., the day of the USS Cole. Mm-hmm. And that kind of was, that's the start of, of my career in the agency. And what do you what do what do you recall about your career? What would you want folks to know about working at CIA? It was it was a great job. I did you know two years in training at the head, headquarters and also at what I used to call our super secret CIA training facility. Super the farm. secret, yeah. But now <laughs> it's on Google Maps, right? Uh, two years India, two years in Pakistan. Um, I did interagency work, and then I managed all of our undercover operations in Afghanistan, and it was to be able to work on the most important national security issues of the day was incredibly rewarding. And, and I always say that the CIA was great. It gives real responsibility and real authority to young officers. And I still miss the ethos of the place. Yes is the answer. You know, what is the question? And that can-do attitude. You can't, you don't have the opportunity to say, oh, you know what? We don't have enough money to do that. Or I don't have enough officers to to try to penetrate that terrorist organization and stop them from blowing up Americans on our homeland. You don't think that way. You didn't act that way. And that was something that it, it instilled a, a work ethic in me that I think I've been able to carry over in Congress. So then what triggered your interest in running for public <laughs> office? So, so I'm in, I was in Afghanistan and a bomb goes off in front of the embassy about 3.30 in the morning, takes out a section of the wall, kills some of our local guards, and my unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened. We conducted about two dozen operations in a short period of time, which was a lot for us. And we had a CODO, a congressional delegation, to be at the embassy later that evening. And I was supposed to be there to brief, and I go into the briefing, and the first thing I overhear is a member of Congress saying, is the CIA going to cut this briefing short so we can get to the bazaar to buy rugs? I'm annoyed. And walking in the briefing, first question, the, the person that asked the question was, had been on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence for four years and asked why, this was 2007, 2008, by the way, and asked, why was Iran not supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan the way Iran was supporting other groups in Iraq? Pretty crummy question, but at least he got all the players right. And so I start explaining the Sunni-Shia divide. And he raises his hand and he says, Heard, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? And I'm thinking he's getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. And who am I to deny him that opportunity? And my response was, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? Mm. 
And his face goes bright red, didn't know that difference in Islam. Right? I always say it's okay for my brother not to know that, but for someone who's making decisions on sending our boys and girls to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, it's unacceptable. Making decisions on how we're spending billions of hard-earned taxpayer dollars is unacceptable. And those, that's just one example of the kinds of behavior I saw when I was briefing members of Congress when I was overseas and I had friends that ran races, and they said, have you ever thought about District 23? And it was basically where I grew up. And so I moved from Kabul, Afghanistan, to San Antonio to run for Congress. And how did that transition work from the secret world to this <laughs> very public right. world and from a world of, you know, that can do, right, to a right. world of protect yourself? And how did that transition work for you? So I had never, since I was undercover, and I was, uh, I was undercover in all my, my entire time in the agency, I never said the three initials out loud. And it was so strange basically saying it all the time. And, but what was interesting to, to me, and, and my district is it's 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It takes 10 and a half hours to drive across it. It's larger than 26 states, and it's the size of the state of Georgia, mm. right? And, and San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the country, cybersecurity city USA. El Paso is a gr- growing city. But there's more cows than people in between. And what was interesting when I, would, when I would go out, when I first started campaigning, people would always come up to me and say, thank me, thank me for my service. And it was a strange phenomenon because that didn't happen when, when I was in my career. And usually people reserve that to folks that was in the military. And so one of the things I've always said, when I see my friends that are still in and still toiling, I'm always tell them people outside the Beltway, outside the Washington, D.C. area, really appreciate and understand the sacrifices um, that men and women in our, our intelligence community are, are taking. Well, history was just made at CIA with Gina Haspel being mm-hmm. sworn in as the first female director what challenges do you think she faces? What would you like to see her focus on as director? Well, I think one of the first things that, that she automatically brings is some consistency. Um, there was a lot of changes in the, the CIA organizational changes that were jarring to a lot of people. With Mike Pompeo came in, he tried to sit and settle that down and you know, remember what the individual officers are doing. And so, so she's going to be able to continue doing that. But we have to re-array or rethink our collection against our strategic threats. There's been a lot of conversation about Russia and what did the Russians want or not want. The reason we can't clearly answer that is our strategic collection on Russia, on Vladimir Putin, is not as good as it should be or can be. I think... You know, we the the intelligence community needs to be reorienting similar to the way DOD and what General Mattis is doing on DOD against some of our major threats like China. Um, China is, you know, you don't need CIA collection or NSA collection to understand what China is trying to do. China is trying to become a world superpower by 2049. And they have a 25 year plan. They now have an emperor, basically, that can execute on this plan. They're trying to dominate in all the future technology. And what they're doing is they're stealing technology from America. They're forcing American companies to operate in China. 
in a certain way that allows them access to that intellectual property. And we need to make sure that we're prepared to deal with that. China, for the first time, has a military base outside of China in Djibouti. I guess it was last year when it was created. Everybody knows about the One Belt, One Road strategy of connecting resources back into China. So we, for the last almost two decades, we've been fighting a non-conventional war in terrorism. And, and I always tell people, so, so I was in CTC, um, I, I was in CTCSO, Counterterrorism Center. Counterterrorism Center, Special Operations Division, on September 12, 2001. If you would have told me the day after 9-11 that it would have been another 17 years before an, a, an attack of that scale on the United States, I would have said you were crazy. And the reason that hasn't happened is because the CIA has been at war for 17 years and it's hard to imagine that. I always say if people understood the size of the CIA and, and how small it really is, they wouldn't. If they only be, knew. They, they'd be, they'd be <laughs> surprised. <tell> them. <laughs> and so collecting against terrorism takes a different skill set, different tactics, techniques, and procedures than it does against a strategic threat like China and Russia. And that transition or that evolution is one thing that Gina is going to have to, uh, is going to, have to deal with. So let's march through the the threats Mm -hmm. facing the United States here. Um, And we could talk about each one of these for for an hour. But let's start with Iran. Do you support the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal? And how do you see this playing out? So I do support pulling out of the deal. I thought the deal was a a bad deal in, in the first place. And it was based on a presumption that the Iranian government was going to change its ways. And the Iranian government has lied to and misled the IAEA on countless of occasions. They have lied to and misled the U.N. Security Council on countless occasions. They are funding terrorist organizations that are killing Americans. Now, the only way we can deal with Iran effectively is with our allies. And so that's the most difficult piece about pulling out of of an agreement um, like the, the, the JCPOA, and, and I, always, I always butcher what that is, but everybody refers to it as the Iran deal. So how do we now get Germany, UK, and France on board with this notion of more needs to be done towards Iran? And so what this plan B or phase two is going to be, we have about 90 days um, before sanctions, snapback is the wrong word, but before we reinstitute sanctions on any company that is dealing with the Iranians, and that's going to impact many of our allies. And National Security Advisor Bolton has already said that this is going to apply to everyone. We really need to go into an intense conversation right now. So what other areas should we be looking at? The Iranian government is interested in pursuing a, a nuclear weapon, and they have the likelihood to use it. And we have to recognize that. And the only way the, – the reason they came to the table under the last administration was because sanctions were working. And we had them on their, on their knees, and we gave up on the tools um, that we got there. And so I hope we don't make that same mistake with North Korea. Yeah. So let's go to North Korea. Yeah. So this historic summit is, is a few weeks away if it happens. Mm-hmm. What do you see – are you optimistic or pessimistic about the outcome of this thing? The entire world – should be hopeful that the issue of North Korea gets solved diplomatically. Nine months ago, you had 
uh, people wondering whether we should be doing duck and cover drills because we thought we were going to potentially have a nuclear war. So diplomacy and solving this through diplomacy is the best way to go. Now, the recent hiccups where, you know, Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, said that training exercises could continue and he expected that to continue. He's kind of backing off on that. So he's showing some of the same behavior he has shown and North and his, his father and his grandfather has have shown in the past of make, uh, agreeing to something and then walking back. The way we're going to get through that is we have to continue to keep sanctions moving forward. We have to continue the diplomacy with China. Uh, two years ago, nobody would have expected China to work with us. Kim Jong-un knew that one more round of sanctions on North Korea would have prevented him from being able to prosecute a conventional war. So he knew that the noose was, was tightening around his neck. We have to keep that pressure up. We also have to keep the pressure of moving our 7th Fleet into that region and making sure we have the military capabilities there. And that's another reason why the Chinese want to see this situation resolved, because they don't want to see our 7th Fleet in in that part of the world. So it's tricky, but I I believe that uh, continued engagement, if we're talking, we're not fighting, and that's the right way to go. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters after a word from our sponsor. In the next-gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs. In the high-tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons. In the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense. Raytheon is there. Driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place. You mentioned, Will, you mentioned both Russia and China. On on Russia, do you think that the United States is doing enough to push back against Russian efforts to weaken us overseas and to weaken us here at home? To answer that question, it starts with what is Russia trying to do? What, what is Vladimir Putin's interest? And it's real simple. He said it himself. He said, I think it was 2004, when he said the, the greatest... The worst thing that have happened in this century was the collapse of the USSR. So he is trying to reestablish the territorial integrity of the USSR. He wants to have diplomatic veto power over the countries around Russia. He's trying to have political veto power and economic veto power over those countries. And what is getting in his way? A little thing called NATO. And what is who is the backbone of NATO? The United States of America. He knows he can't take on NATO or the U.S. militarily. Vladimir Putin knows he can't take us on economically. So that's why he has to resort to asymmetrical warfare. That's why he's trying to erode trust. He can't trust. be strong himself, so he needs to weaken us. Absolutely. And, 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 and guess what? What do you think the Moldovans think when Russia tried to manipulate our elections, you know, the greatest and, and most powerful democracy on the planet? And what do the Moldovans think about what, you know, the, if the Russians can do it there— they're, they're going to be able to do it in, in Chisinau, right? And, and so that's the, the step. So what else should we be doing? Sanctions are important. I think the round of finally doing the round of sanctions on some of these oligarchs, which is what really hurts Putin by, by attacking the money, 
I actually think in a place like eastern Ukraine, we should be using our latest and greatest when it comes to electronic warfare. The Russians, this is not a separatist movement that's happening in eastern Ukraine. It is an invasion of a sovereign country. And, and the fact that the Russians have been able to trick people into talking about it as if it's a separatist movement is, is an example of the power of, of asymmetrical warfare. And so I think we should be doing more with our friends in Ukraine. I think a country like Georgia, which even though they're not part of NATO, they're a cooperating partner. Right now, they're doing even more than the Turks are. We should be showing support to allies in the region. Moldova is a place I, I've, I've traveled to, to recently. So we need to be showing support to those places. And we need to be doing basic things. Why isn't MTV shown on television in Eastern Europe? It's not at, at any... I haven't been able to, to find it. What do the Russians do? The Russians are selling their Russian soap operas to that part of the world, and they, they give them 50 minutes. 40 minutes of it is the soap opera. 10 minutes of it is their news, which is ultimately propaganda. Uh, we should be beaming old episodes of Oprah and Modern Family in, into that part of the world because we have forgotten that our soft power is probably more important than our hard power. And, and now when you have embassies or the most – U.S. embassies are the most fortified places in another country. They're not welcoming. It's, it's a bad symbol. It's a bad sign that we're, we're saying. So more sanctions, absolutely. I don't think we can do enough against Russia. We need to call them out whenever they're doing um, cyber attacks on, on our infrastructure, on our industry, on our government. And we need to make sure that we're building – we're continuing to strengthen our, our relationship with NATO because they're a critical piece in dealing with Russia. So now even a harder question. You talked about the strategic challenge the Chinese mm-hmm. posed to the United States of America, and I couldn't agree more with you. What do we do about it? Sure. What What is the right U.S. approach to this very long-term problem? I would probably characterize China as our frenemy, right? because we do have a lot of economic ties that are important to both countries. Uh, first, it's recognizing that they're actually a problem. And I look at when venture capital, which, I, which is the pointy end of capital, in 20 years ago, 92% of venture capital was deployed in the United States of America. In 2017, it was only about 52%. That delta is made up by China and, and also France. Uh, last year, in 20, that was 2016 numbers, excuse me. 2017, eight of the top 10 VC deals in China. were in China. So there's a lot of things we should be doing. One, we need to be making sure that we're doubling down on some of this technology they're trying to raise to. Artificial intelligence, quantum computing. These, the, the, the Chinese understand this. They've identified 10 areas that they want to be best in the world in. And then they're stealing it from us and they're building it themselves. We also need to change our immigration laws so that when a, a young Chinese student comes over here and studies at Texas A&M or Georgetown – that uh, they're able to stay here in the U.S. and work for a U.S. company or start their company here in the United States of America. We also need to be engaging. Pulling out a TPP or pulling out a talks of TPP was a terrible idea. If, if you want it, our world economy to be rules-based, we got to be engaged. we got to be a part of that. And so engaging in multilateral forms like that. There's some talk about the president relooking at TTP. Is that is that what you hear? Um, yes, and 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 that that is a debate. We we got to get NAFTA right first, right? Um, I I think some of the recent 
decisions with China. It's almost like we're being we're we're not being as tough with China as we are with our own allies, right? Uh, Mexico, we're lucky to have Mexico and Canada as our neighbors. And and one of the things I learned when I was in the CIA, be nice with nice guys and tough with tough guys. Mm-hmm. And and I think right now when it comes to trade, we're doing the opposite. Uh, but we should be engaging in Vietnam. We should be engaging further with Taiwan. We should be working with our allies like Australia on these issues. We need to be making sure that we're helping on infrastructure projects in Africa and so we still have an opportunity to deal with China's economic threat that they're doing um, in the rest of the world. But we have to have a, a whole government strategy. And we also need to be making sure that we're doing things that allow our businesses to be competitive in those parts of the world as well, too. So, Will, you've done a, a lot of thinking on cyber. The four countries we just talked about mm-hmm. are a big part of the nation state threat, mm-hmm. you know, vis-a-vis cyber. And then you have organized crime, of course. What do you think? the government's role should be in defending private networks. How do you think about that? So I, I think in some ways it's, it's real simple. If it's been identified as critical infrastructure, then the government should play a role. And, and what is that role? I think we need to make it clear. We need to say when there is a threat, what is the role of the FBI or the NSA in that case, and what is the role of that company that may what, let, let's say it's a, um, a utility provider and then what is the role of you know they may be using third-party services we need to be understanding what everybody's role and responsibility is we need to also um, the thing that i've learned when i was out in the private sector there's a lot of really amazing this is talent. one of the things you focused on when you were in the private sector. absolutely so so i ran for congress the first time and i lost and i became a partner consulting firm helped start a cybersecurity company and and one of the things that I, I've learned is that the talent that's out in, in the private sector. So the utility sector, or let's take, let's take financial services. The, the financial services industry have a better idea where the next wave of Russian malware is going to come than the NSA does. So why don't we turn some of those assumptions into collection priorities? Get that to our friends in the intelligence community. Go collect that information so that we all, federal government, and the private sector are able to better defend ourselves against that threat. So you would turn that government knowledge then back to the private sector so they can better defend themselves. Uh, for sure. Particularly for sure. in the critical infrastructure space. It, it is. And, and we're having a problem now in the cyberspace of, of how you look at you – know, there's always a tension between intelligence and action, right? Intelligence professionals – don't ever want to do anything with the intelligence because it may impact sources, right? You may lose that stream of intelligence, but sometimes you have to act on that intelligence, and by acting on that intelligence, you may lose that intelligence. And so when it comes to the cyber world, once something is out, everybody gets to have access to it. So we need to rethink how we and what is really considered classified in when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to defending our, our infrastructure. And that's a, that's a long-term conversation, and it's something we need to be doing with the public and the private sector, especially around people that are considered critical infrastructure. The administration just eliminated the top cyber job mm-hmm. um, in the NSC, saying it was duplicative and it needed to be streamlined. Good idea, bad idea? What do you think? So I would almost say to be determined because the deputy national security advisor has a deep background in cybersecurity, ran cybersecurity companies or divisions, cybersecurity divisions in large uh, private sector companies. So so she has that capability. Um, But also they they didn't eliminate the other 
working level folks that were dealing with cyber. It, it eliminated a, a management position. This now goes directly to the deputy. Um, whether the deputy of the NSA has the bandwidth to handle all of these issues, that's to be determined. I think the decision that was made that I hope Secretary Pompeo changes was the elimination of the ambassador at large for cybersecurity at the State Department. Because we need to be engaging and we need to be making sure that every country has criminal laws when it comes to cyber attacks. And the State Department is playing that lead. And, and, and the elimination of that position, I think, has a bigger impact on working with our allies and making sure that we're bringing everyone together and, and having a, and defining what good cybersecurity looks like, what, national, what, what norms, what international norms are supposed to look like. And I hope that's an issue that Secretary Pompeo rethinks. So maybe this is the most important question, Will. You've answered all of the questions related to the threats facing the United States by talking about the significant role the U.S. has to play mm-hmm. in the world, right? Something I believe, and I know you believe it, if we don't, there's a vacuum and the vacuum gets filled by bad guys. 100%. The question, right, the question is, how do you talk to your constituents about why that's important? Because there's a lot of people in the United States who say we have our own problems. Mm -hmm. We should focus on our problems here at home. We should not worry about problems overseas. How do you talk to your folks about why this is important? You know, the the longer I've been in Congress, the more I think about very broad questions. What is the U.S.'s role in the rest of the world, right? And why is that ultimately important to us? And it starts with, and and I think the, the way I do it is I take issue by issue. Why does Afghanistan and Syria matter to the United States of America? Because there cannot be a failed state where terrorist organizations are able to plan, train, and equip to attack our homeland. Period. End of story. It is a fraction of the cost to deal with the problem over there before it comes to our homeland. Take the, the, the threat of China. Our ability to export our culture, our products to the rest of the world has what has allowed our standard of living in order to increase. And we are the ones that have made the world more stable. We are the ones that have been able to export democracy to other parts of the world. And, and we, we have to remember that. I, I think it's, it's real simple. For those of us that understand these things, we have to continue to talk about them. And we've taken stuff for granted. I, I talked earlier about NATO. There's 70 years of peace and prosperity in Europe. Why? Because of NATO. There's never been 70 years of peace and prosperity except for this most recent period. And so the fact that NATO even came up as a topic on the campaign in 2016 is kind of crazy to me. So I, I think the folks that I interact with are patriotic. They understand the role that we have. And I talk to kids as much as I can. And I usually tell a story about my time in the CIA. And, and my point of the stories is that the United States of America is the only country in the world that has the resources and the willingness to help people, even if they're 6,000 miles away. And that's that ethos is what our country is about and what we're built on. And we got to make sure that we are leading in the rest of the world. Well, you serve on the House Intelligence Committee, which I guess has had something of a rough year, at least according <laughs> to the media. Yeah. What are your takeaways from how the Russia investigation was conducted? You know, could it have been conducted better? How do you think about that? Put that in context for us. So I've only been on the committee for about a year and a half. And 
Speaker it, Ryan put you on. Speaker there. Ryan put me on there after Mike Pompeo went over to the CIA. I was Pompeo's replacement. And during my time in the CIA, I saw how when you had members of the intelligence community come overseas, it was done in a bipartisan way. There are multiple investigations. And ultimately, the House, we were trying to look at what actually happened. What was the government's response to it? How could the government's response have been better? And what can we be doing in order to prevent this or be prepared for this in the future? I always think the best way to do things is together and in a bipartisan way. It was unfortunate that things began to break down. Um, But we also found at our federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, it appeared that uh, political leaders of those organizations were putting their thumb on the scale. And we give so much authority to these individuals and that we have to hold them to the highest standard. Now, that's why I think um, Bob Mueller should be allowed to continue his work and turn over every stone and follow every lead. I think this Department of Justice Inspector General report about, you know, now it's probably going to be widening is good for our institutions to make sure that they are ultimately above reproach. It's Congress's role to provide oversight. And when that oversight is done in a bipartisan way, it's always better. And to ensure that there's transparency. Particularly with the intelligence community, right, which secret organizations operating in a democracy, right, there has to be somebody to tell the American people that the law is being followed, the resources are being used mm. efficiently, and that they're sure. effective, right? It's incredibly important. Every, every time I travel overseas and I meet with my fellow parliamentarians, they all ask us questions about what their intelligence services are doing because it is rare to have civilian oversight of the intelligence community. And that is one of the hallmarks of our institutions. And so... It's a serious role. I'm glad I'm able to be there to to leverage um, my understanding and having spent almost a decade in the community and and know how it works. Um, But this is it's that civilian oversight is so important to making sure that the American people trust these organizations. And ultimately, I think they do. So your chairman, Devin Nunez, has taken quite a bit of heat. What do you want my listeners to, to know about Devin? Devin is ultimately doing what he thinks is is best, and he cares about the institutions of the intelligence community, the institutions within the intelligence community. I think your listeners need to know that the intelligence committee is more than just one person, and there's many of us that are trying to work in in a bipartisan way on these individual issues. You know, one of the things I would say to you, Will, is thank you for your service on the committee because there's not a lot of political credit. There aren't big intelligence bases, right, in districts, (laughs) and there aren't big defense contractors selling a lot of stuff to the intelligence community. So it's extraordinarily important work for which there's not a significant political payoff. So thank you for your service. No, it's my pleasure. It's, It's my passion. It's interesting to see how things have come full circle I decided to run for office because of my exposure to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and now I'm sitting on that committee and and trying to prevent some of those things that I saw when I was in. Will, it was great to have you with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That was Congressman Will Hurd, 
and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us again next time. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis and Jamie Benson. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.